Good morning. I'd like you to join me in your Bibles in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul's theme throughout 2 Corinthians has been authentic Christianity, genuine Christianity, and he's been stressing that theme because the Corinthians are being influenced by men who are not authentic, who are not genuine, who in fact are false teachers and fakes and frauds. And so Paul wants to be certain that his readers understand what authentic Christianity is. And he's already stressed several characteristics of it in this book. If you've been with us, you've seen that authentic Christianity finds comfort in the midst of suffering. Authentic Christianity experiences peace even when I've been misunderstood. It offers forgiveness even when I'm still hurt. It finds adequacy in the midst of inadequacy. It manifests life even though I'm dying. It focuses on the inner man rather than the outer man. On eternal glory rather than temporal glory. On the unseen rather than the seen. On our heavenly bodies rather than our earthly bodies. On the fear of God rather than the fear of man. It focuses on the love of Christ rather than the love of me. It focuses on new things rather than old things. Authentic Christianity is a new creation with a new covenant and a new ministry. And at the end of chapter 5 and the first couple verses of chapter 6, we are told that we are ambassadors for Christ, carrying out this new ministry, which is the message of reconciliation to this world. And then in chapter 6, in verses 3 to 13, which we want to look at this morning, he switches his emphasis from the message to the messenger. He wants to illustrate what authentic Christianity is. And here we get a concrete example of genuine Christianity. This is authentic Christianity, exhibit A. What does authentic Christianity look like? What should God's servant look like? What should God's ambassador look like? Well, Paul's going to show us in these verses, we're going to get some insight into six aspects of the servant of God, and I've listed them in your bulletin. The first one is the passion of the servant of God. What was Paul's passion? What was it that was foremost in his heart and life? What was the most important thing to him? Well, look at verse 3. Giving no offense or no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited, but in everything commending ourselves as servants of God. What was his passion? He tells us in verse 3, it's the ministry. What ministry? Back in chapter 5 and verse 18, the end of the verse, he calls it the ministry of reconciliation. Bringing men and women who are separated from God by their sin back into right relationship with him. That is Paul's passion. And if you'll notice, in verse 3, he says, I'll do anything not to discredit it. And in verse 4, I will do everything 
to commend it. I won't do anything to discredit it, and I will do everything to commend it. Look at verse 3 again. Giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited. What usually turns people off to the gospel? Is it the message or is it the messenger? Well, the message is offensive, but too often times people never get to the message because they've been offended by the messenger. George Bernard Shaw once sarcastically said, Christianity might be a good thing if anyone ever tried it. Paul says, if they're going to be offended, they're going to be offended by the message and not the messenger. He takes great, ca- or great care to cause no offense in anything. And for Paul, that meant not only did he give up his wrongs, but he gave up his rights. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 13, he talks about his right to eat meat offered to idols. And then he says, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again. In the next chapter, chapter 9, he talks about his right to get his living from the gospel. And he says in verse 11, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? And then he says this, nevertheless, we did not use this right. Why? Because Paul's passion was his ministry. And he didn't want to do anything to discredit it. That's the negative side. And then he mentions the positive side, beginning at the first part of verse 4. But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God. Paul says, I want everything I do to let others know that I am a servant of God. You say, well, wait a minute, Dan. Back in chapter 5 and verse 12, he says, we are not commending ourselves. Now in chapter 6 and verse 4, he says, we are commending ourselves. Is that a contradiction? No. Because back in chapter 5, the commendation he's talking about is words. He's saying, I'm not going to speak up and commend myself. Here in chapter 6 and verse 4, he's talking about deeds. He says, I want everything I do to commend me. And that's why he uses that word everything. I want people to see in everything that I am a servant of God. I want my life, I want my deeds, I want my attitudes to say I am God's servant so that they will be open to the message. That was Paul's passion. Second, we see the perseverance of the servant of God. In, at the, notice the end of verse 4. In much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger. In these verses, Paul is highlighting what he means by the phrase, in everything. And he's going to list some of the difficulties that the servant of God goes through. 
And the first quality that he mentions is one that every servant of God must have. This is a quality you can't get by without. In verse 4, he says, in much endurance. The servant of God must persevere. And this word in the Greek is hupo mino. Mino means to remain. Hupo means under. The word literally means to remain under the difficulties of life. To hang in there, to stay in there, to stay under those difficulties. Let me tell you something if you have a misconception here. God's goal is not to take you out of the difficulties of life. God is to develop in you the quality that allows you to stay in there, the capacity that allows you to stay under those trials. In fact, it's interesting in Scripture, there's only one way to get endurance. You know what it is? Romans 5.3 says, Tribulation brings about perseverance. James 1.3 says, the testing of your faith produces endurance. So the one thing you need, endurance, to handle the trials of life, you only get from the trials of life. So as you go through the trials of life, you develop the endurance to be able to handle the trials of life. And if you think that as a Christian, as a servant of God, that you can skirt through life and miss these, you are mistaken. In fact, the Bible promises you in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We used to have a family in this church And uh, when you looked up their address, they lived on Easy Street. That was in name only because no Christian lives on Easy Street. Christians live on Tough Street, Hard Street, Difficult Street, Painful Street. And Paul here points out nine avenues of his life in which he commended himself as a servant of God where he endured, where he stayed under those things. And we can divide them into three groups of three. The first is general trials at the end of verse 4. Notice the phrase, in afflictions. That word literally means pressure. Pressure from without that often initiates pressure from within. Those cares, those concerns, those anxieties of life that press down on you and sometimes seem to never let up. And then he mentions in hardships, that's a word that means an obligation. The King James Version gives necessities. It's something you can't go around. It's the idea of an obstacle in front of you in the road that you can't go around. You have to go through that. And then the third thing he mentions is in distresses. And that's the idea of a narrow place that seems to be closing in on every side. When you feel like you're in a situation where you're so so enclosed that you can't even turn around. Have you been there? 
when life circumstances are pressing down on you and there are obstacles looming in your path and you feel like the walls are coming in on you so that you can't even turn, what do you do? Paul says, we endure. We stay under it. We commend ourselves as servants of God in everything. Second group is trials inflicted by others at the beginning of verse 5. He says, in beatings. Later in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four, Paul says, Five times I received 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. I don't know anybody in this room that knows what it is to be beaten for their faith in Christ, but Paul did. And he wasn't speaking figuratively in Galatians six seventeen when he said, I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. In beating, secondly, he says, in imprisonments. There are four imprisonments of Paul recorded in Scripture. The early church fathers tell us there were many more. Paul spent at least five years of his life in prison. Then he says, in tumults, that's a reference to riots, mob violence. Paul is referring to times when his preaching incited an angry mob to vent their rage upon him. That's a frightening thought. It bothers me when one of you gets up and walks out. Read the book of Acts. So many times Paul gives a message and the reaction is they grab him and throw him out of the synagogue. They they stone him and drag him out of town and leave him for dead. They run him off. Then he mentions, now that's the last one in that group. What do you do when you're beaten? What do you do when you're imprisoned? What do you do when everybody seems to be against you? Paul says, we endure. We stay under it. And we commend ourselves as servants of God in everything. Then the third group is trials inflicted by himself. Continuing in verse 5, he says, in labors, that's a word that describes hard, unremitting toil to the point of exhaustion. Paul labored planting churches, and then he labored making tents. Then he says, in sleeplessness, Acts 20, 31 says, we admonished you night and day. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 says we worked night and day. 2 Thessalonians 3.8 says we worked night and day. When do you sleep when you work night and day? You don't sleep very much. So Paul says in labor and sleeplessness, and then he mentions in hunger. Sometimes it was deliberate because of fasting. Sometimes it was opposed upon him by circumstances. What do you do when you're exhausted from working, when you haven't had any sleep, and when you're hungry? Paul says we endure. We stay under it. And we commend ourselves as the servants of God in everything. Everything.
You see, the way you know I'm a servant of God and the way I know that you're a servant of God is not by Sunday morning. It's by how you handle and how I handle the trials of life. And then thirdly, he mentions the personality of the servant of God at the beginning of verse 6. You say, well, Dan, I think I can endure all these things. Just don't let anybody get around me while I am. You know, I'll handle these things, but I will fuss and complain, and I will lose my cool. Well, that's not really what Paul has in mind. Notice the personality of the servant of God in verse 6. In purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness. That word purity is the same as the root word for holy. It means pure from defilement, not contaminated. That's what trials are designed to do in your life. 1 Peter 1 says trials are like fire on gold. You put gold in the fire and you melt the gold down and guess what? The gold is heavier than the impurities in it and the impurities rise to the top called the dross and the goldsmith would wipe the dross off after the gold went in the fire. You as a believer go in the fire. Guess what happens? God is trying to bring the impurities out of your life. He is trying to purify you through the trials of life. And I love that illustration because the way the goldsmith would know when the gold was pure is he could see his reflection in the gold. And that's what Jesus wants to see in you and me. His reflection in us. He puts us through the fire for us to get there. In purity. In knowledge. One form of that knowledge is the knowledge of God's purpose. What is God trying to do in your life? He's not trying to make you comfortable. He's trying to make you like Jesus. And the way he does that is by allowing you to go through the trials of life. There's a great word in James 1.3, and it's the first word in that verse. It says, knowing. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Why? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. I can go through the trials because I have the knowledge of what God is doing in my life, his purpose in me. And not only do I know his purpose, but I get to know God. I get to know God through the trials of life. God doesn't just teach us in the classroom. He teaches us in the lab. He gives us the knowledge of who he is, and then he teaches us in the laboratory of life as we apply that truth in knowing God through everything. And then in patience. That's a word that literally means long-tempered, having a long fuse, not blowing up, not retaliating. When you're tired and hungry and under pressure, people almost expect you to be impatient. Paul says, no. We're to exhibit patience. And that's coming from a guy who wasn't very patient. Paul wasn't naturally patient. He was a guy that was driven And yet he says, in all these things, the servant of God shows himself to be patient. And then he adds, in kindness. That's the idea of sweetness of temper. Not only do I not express, or not only do I express patience, that is withholding my anger, but I express kindness, which is showing 
goodness and care and concern for other people. You say, well, how can anyone in the midst of persecution reflect that kind of personality? How can anybody, while they're being beaten and stoned and falsely accused, how can they show purity and knowledge and patience and kindness? You say, that's impossible. Well, the answer lies in the fourth aspect of the servant of God, the provision of the servant of God. Look at the end of verse 6. In the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God. Paul is not just clenching his fist and clenching his jaw and determining, by golly, I'm going to show the world how much I can take for Christ. No. Where is his provision coming from? It's coming from God. We said that is the short definition of the new covenant. It's all from God and nothing from me. Here he says it's God's spirit, it's God's love, it's God's word, it's God's power, and it's God's weapons. And so in going back to the previous point, the personality that the servant of God displays is really the personality of Christ. Remember what he said in chapter 4 and verse 11? He said, For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. He gives us the provision, and the life of Christ is manifest in us. And how is it manifest in us? Through death. When we are squeezed out of ourselves, when we are down to nothing, Jesus shows up and manifests himself. So it's none of our resources, it's all of God's resources. Anything positive that is accomplished in your life and my life is the fruit of the Spirit. Any expression of real, genuine, unselfish love is God's love poured out in you. Any wisdom or insight that we attain comes because God has entrusted us with his word Any strength or ability that we may manifest comes from the power of God. Any victories that we might experience come because of the weapons he has given to us. It's all his provision. And I like that he says we have weapons for the right hand and the left. Somebody has uh, referred that to Matthew 6.3 where Jesus said, Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing And they say the right hand is our public life, the left hand is our private life, and God is providing in both of those. I guess I'm more into action movies. I like the idea you got two weapons. The the one in your right hand is a sword, the one in your left hand is a shield. The one in your right hand is offensive, the one in your left hand is defensive. And whether you need to be offensive or defensive, God provides it all for you and me. And how does your provision show up? In the daily trials of life. 
Don't expect to see God's power show up. Don't expect to see his provision show up in him bringing fire out of heaven for you. You'll see it in endurance, purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, love through the trials of life. Which brings us to the fifth aspect, the paradox of the servant of God. The genuine Christian can expect that his life will be a continual paradox because there will be a constant contrast between the world's perspective and God's perspective. There will always be a contrast between fleshly appearance and spiritual reality. And Paul lists some of those in verses 8 to 10. Notice he says in verse 8, by glory and dishonor. Paul was probably one of the most dishonored persons in the world. And yet, before God, he was one of the most honored. By evil report and good report, the Jews were always conjuring up false accusations against Paul to incite the crowds. What's the paradox? Before God, he was hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. Regarded as deceivers and yet true. If you've ever been called a deceiver, You're in good company. The day after his crucifixion, the Pharisees said to Pilate in Matthew 27, 63, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days, I will rise again. People are so blind that they call truth a lie and a lie truth. In verse 9, as unknown and yet well known, the world looks at the servant of God and says, never heard of him. He's a nobody. What's the paradox? I'm known by the God of this universe. In fact, you know what? He has my name written on the palm of his hand. As dying, yet behold, we live. Somebody looks at Paul's life, they say, this guy is just, he's got a death wish. I mean, he's always this close to death. He's been stoned. He's always in prison. He's, he's been sentenced to death. But from God's perspective, he is living the abundant life. That's a paradox. As punished, yet not put to death. Many of the religious people looked at Paul and said, God's punishing him. Paul didn't defend that. He said, yes, God is disciplining me. God is always disciplining us as his children. But I have to think he has Psalm 118.18 in mind where it says, The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Verse 10, As sorrowful yet always rejoicing, You'd expect a guy who was beaten, imprisoned, mobbed, stoned, afflicted, tired, and hungry to be sad. In the next chapter, chapter 7 and verse 4, here's what Paul says. I am overflowing with joy in all our afflictions. Guys, just bubbling over with joy. That's a paradox. As poor yet making many rich, God's economy is different from the world. From the world's perspective, Paul was poor. From God's perspective, he was handing out riches. 
And then he says, as having nothing yet possessing all things. The child of God who has nothing in this world possesses everything. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 21 and 22, he repeats it twice. He says, all things belong to you. So Paul's life was a constant paradox. The world viewed him as dishonorable, evil, a deceiver, unknown, dying, punished, sorrowful, poor, and empty. But in reality, he was honored, good, true, well-known, lived life to the fullest, always rejoicing, making many rich, and possessing all things. That is the paradox of the servant of God. And then finally, we see the petition of the servant of God in verses 11 to 13. Notice what he says. Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is opened wide. We have spoken freely and our heart is open. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. You are restrained from us, but it's not because of us. It's because of your own affections being drawn up. And then he says in verse 13, Now in a like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us also. I'm speaking to you like a father speaks to his child. I've opened my heart to you. Here's my petition. Open your heart to me. Let's make an equal exchange. I'm giving you my heart. I'm pouring out my heart. You pour out your heart to me. You'd think after listening to all this, Paul's petition would be, get me out of some of this stuff. What I find interesting here is that Paul could take the rejection from the world because he expected it. It was part of the paradox of authentic Christianity. But what he couldn't take is rejection from his brothers and sisters in Christ. And so after listing all of these things, he says, that's part of the package. That's part of being a servant of God. My petition is that you would give me your heart the way I've given you my heart. That's his petition. And so his primary petition is not to get relief from any of his trials. It's to have the love of his brothers and sisters because that is really the heart of authentic Christianity. So there's the illustration of authentic Christianity, of what a true servant looks like, is what you as an ambassador for Christ are to look like. The passion is the ministry, doing nothing to discredit it. The perseverance to stay under the trials of life. The personality is the personality of Christ being manifest through us. The provision, it all comes from God. The paradox, the world will never understand the reality of your life and your goals. And the petition that brothers and sisters, co-servants of God, would dwell together in loving unity. We're going to have communion This morning, Mike Edmonds is going to come at this time and share and introduce our communion.